So uh, last week we had our uh, launch of the Vision for 2019 on fire, and you can see evidence of that, not the actual fire, but the vision statement. Um, tell you a little story about fire. I was camping with uh, a large group of 12-year-olds, and uh, these children, part of their experience was to cook their own meals over an open fire. And we'd told them before the, uh, the camp that uh, meals were a... Um, a social time. Don't just think that they would grab and run and do the next activity, but it might take them an hour and a half even um, to properly construct a fire, to light the fire, to uh, let it burn, then let it die down. So you just got those really deeply warm, glowing coals, and you cook over the coals, and we try to explain that to uh, to the children. So uh, the first night, there was a little group gathered around. They had a couple of thin twigs and a huge amount of crumpled up newspaper. And uh, they set that alight and that went very quickly. And they thought, great, let's cook. So they got out their sausages, put the fry pan on top of that, and within about 30 seconds there was no fire anymore. So uh, out came the two-minute noodles. They uh, ate those raw, (laughs) put a bit of water in the shake-and-make pancakes, drank that, and off they went. That, That was dinner. That was dinner. So uh, an interesting story about uh, fires. Uh, Our Bible verse this morning, our Bible passage is about fire as well, but I want to give you some context before we actually turn to look at the the passage. Um, The story is about Moses and the burning bush. And that wasn't one of those newspaper up in smoke kind of experiences, I'm sure. But the context to that goes way back into history. And I want to just quickly go through so we understand the significance of this part of, uh, of the Bible. Um, way back in, uh, in the very early times in the Bible, God spoke to a man called Abraham. Uh, he and his wife were old. They had no children. And uh, they had no land of their own. Uh, and God said, I will build from you a mighty nation and give you a place that's yours to live. So... For that to happen, you need two things, kids and land. They had neither. Um, Sarah was beyond the age of childbearing, but uh, she did become pregnant. And uh, she had a son, Isaac. And uh, Isaac, then as he got older, uh, he married and he had a son or some children. One was Jacob. Um, Jacob had children, had 12 sons. Uh, one of those sons was Joseph, Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat. So uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph. Now Joseph was the favourite. Uh, his brothers didn't like that. They got rid of him. He was sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt. And uh, because of his heart for God and his loyalty, uh, his, his strong sense of what's right and wrong, uh, he got, um, became in favour with the Pharaoh and uh, rose to become second in all of Egypt and uh, was given the job of saving Egypt from a time of famine, um, carefully storing food in time of plenty for use in the time of famine. And during uh, this famine, when food was being rationed out by Joseph in Egypt, um, people came from other lands to, uh, to get some food because they had none. And Joseph's family, Jacob, And the other 11 sons and their wives and their kids also came to Egypt, um, restored with uh, with Joseph again, and uh, were given food. And so that's how um, Jacob 
and his sons and his family came to live uh, in Egypt. Um, Over time, um, the people in that story, the central characters passed away and uh, a new pharaoh came into power who didn't know about Joseph and didn't know how he'd save the country and didn't know the favour that they had towards Joseph's and his family, Jacob and the sons and the daughters and uh, and their children. And um, uh, the Israelites, Jacob's family, grew and multiplied in numbers and they were strong. And the new pharaoh was concerned that if these people, this nation, kept growing and growing and growing, they might overtake Egypt. Or if enemies attacked Egypt, they might take sides with the enemies. And so the pharaoh decided to put the people of Israel in slavery and make them work really hard. And uh, so for 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. Uh, Their numbers kept multiplying. They kept crying out to God because life was really harsh. It was really tough. And uh, the Bible tells us that God heard their cries and uh, that he was going to do something about that. And this is where the next character comes in, Moses. Uh, Moses, of course, was, was born during this time. Um, the Pharaoh had decreed that all baby boys would be drowned in the Nile to try and keep the population down and uh, stop the might of the Israelites. Um, Moses was saved from that. Um, He was actually raised by the daughter of the Pharaoh. And um, when he was about 40, Moses saw uh, an Egyptian mistreating one of his fellow Israelites. He got angry. He killed the Egyptian And then, concerned for his own life, he fled out into the desert and um, met a man who had daughters, married one of the daughters, and uh, became uh, a carer of his father-in-law's sheep. Jethro was his father-in-law. So we've got this character out in the desert looking after sheep for his father-in-law. We have the people of Israel in Egypt, uh, in slavery, and uh, crying out to God. Um, We have this long-term promise that God has said to Abraham, I'll make a nation of you, you will have your land of your own. We've got all these things coming together and that's where we pick up the Bible verse. Thanks, Cameron. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush and I'm sure there wasn't a newspaper in sight. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go to see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites now live. 
I believe the Vegemites were there too, but they spread too far. Look, the cry of the people of Israel, Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And we can look at that story and we can look at the context and the history and what happened. We can look at the characters and the people and learn a lot. But this morning I want to focus on three qualities of God that come through this story. If you're taking notes, the first point is God is holy, but dot, dot, dot. And we'll complete that sentence shortly. So God says to Moses, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes for this ground is holy ground. There was nothing special about the ground. It was the fact that the presence of God was there. And God's holy presence makes the things around him holy as well. The dictionary says that holy is something that has been uh, dedicated to God or consecrated or set aside for religious purposes. But when we're talking about God being holy, obviously he's not set aside for himself or dedicated to himself. It's a different kind of a meaning. Sometimes people think of God being holy as God being the perfection of morally right kinds of things. That we try to be kind to our friends and neighbours and family, but God is the perfection of kindness. Um, We try to be uh, patient with them. He's the perfection of that. We try to be good in all that we do, but God is the perfection of good. Um, We try to forgive one another, and God is the ultimate in forgiveness. And in one sense, that's true, that God is, is morally perfect and right. But holiness isn't just going up the scale. We can be here, God can be there. If it was, I wonder, could we ever get to that point? It's not just turning up the dial and going up to a higher degree of something. God's holiness is because he is utterly unique and utterly different from any other being or person in the universe. And he's actually aside from the universe, aside from creation. We see him as someone who is in creation and through creation and over, but he's also aside from creation. He made creation. He is the creator. And his holiness is something that's apart from who we are and where we are. Because of that, because he's a part of, apart from creation, this is why when Moses and the people were coming to the Red Sea, God wasn't confined by sending boats or waiting to a low tide or something like that that is part of creation. He's outside of creation. He could part the waters, something that was never seen before. That is why when the people of Israel in their journey through the wilderness to the promised land were hungry, he could create a brand new food and have it miraculously appear in the morning for the Israelites to collect because he's outside of creation. That's why when Jesus went to visit friends whose brother died and the friends said, Jesus, if you'd only been here to heal him, he would have lived. It wasn't a problem. Jesus is outside of creation. He could walk in and raise this man from the dead. And I think it's important for us to realise 
that God's ways are higher than ours, his thoughts are higher than ours because of his holiness. He can do things that we can't imagine. He's not stumped or limited by things in creation. He's outside of that. And he can do the miraculous. Sometimes people have that perception of God and it's a bit like, well, if he's holy, if he's out there, if he's part of creation, he's not really interested in me. And it's a bit like, um, I don't know whether you ever turn on the cricket match to watch on TV and you keep one eye on the match, catch the scores from time to time, see the replay of the exciting bits, but you're doing something else at the same time. And some people have that impression of God that he just keeps half an eye on us and really leads us to our own devices. And that's not true. There was a survey done in the United States in 2005. Thousands and thousands of young people. And a lot of them had that perception of God. There is some sort of spiritual being. There is someone who's in the universe who's that power, but it doesn't come down to a day-to-day walk with my life. So God is holy, but he's intimately in love with you the fact that he is outside of anything that we know doesn't mean that he doesn't love us we are the focus of his heart we are at the center of who he is Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 that even the very hairs on our heads are numbered that God notices when a sparrow falls to the ground and how much more valuable are we to God than they Jesus made the way possible to a holy God through his death. And we can approach him. We can be near to him. We are known to him. We are loved by him. So even though he's holy, this amazingly mighty, powerful, perfect God, he knows you and wants to know you even more. We see that in the story. He called Moses by name. That brings me to my second point. If you're taking notes, God knows us better than... Dot, dot, dot. We're filling the dots shortly, though, you might guess. So Moses is called by name, and the task before him is outlined. Do you know there's nothing about Moses that would make us think he's the right man for the job? He's been asked to stand before Pharaoh, not to stand before him, but stand up to him. To release his labour to him. He has to regain favour with his own people. After he killed an Egyptian and fled for 40 years, he was disconnected from them. And the first 40 years of his life, he'd he'd been raised in the palace. So even though he was an Israelite, there was a bit of a disconnect. So he had to go to his people and say, hey guys, you know, remember me? He was just a common shepherd. He was 80 years old. He had no track record of leadership. No track record of doing anything above the ordinary. The only tracks he had were those that um, were following the sheep around. So what's Moses' response? When God says, I have heard the people's cry, I will let them out. We will go to that land and you're the one who's going to do it. His first response 
can be summed up, oh, I'm not up to the job, you must have the wrong guy. There's this sense of feeling unworthy. It can't possibly be me to do that. God's reply is simply, I will be with you. And if we're feeling not up to a task, if we're feeling unworthy or overwhelmed by something we know God is calling us to do, we just have to remember those words spoken by God to Moses. I will be with you. Strangely, that's not enough for Moses. He needs a bit more convincing. And he says to God, well, when I go and talk with the Israelites, they, they won't believe me. They won't believe that I've spoken to God. And he feels as though he, as though he has a lack of authority. What right have I got to go to these people and talk? God says, I will give you signs to convince them. So it's not about Moses' authority. It's about what God will do through Moses. He says, but but how can I explain who you are? There's this sense of inadequate knowledge. I don't know enough about you, God. I don't know enough about what I have to do. How can I explain And he says, I'm the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and so on. Just simply, all you need to know is that I am the God of your ancestors. I am who I am. So at this stage, Moses is sort of clutching at straws. He could have said, well, hey, you know, God, I am 80 I get tired if I have to walk too far. I don't like sleeping on the ground. My back gets a bit sore. God, I've just finally paid my house off. I don't want to leave now. I promised my father-in-law Jethro I'd look after him in his old age and mind the flocks and his family. And who would look after the sheep? No one can do it like I can. I've got this special way of getting them to go right and left. And I've just got this thing that I do. I don't think anyone could look after them like I do. They're the kind of things he could have said. He says to God, but I'm no speaker. I I, I get nervous. I I stumble. I I, I, I don't know what to say. I'll be lost for words. Moses was misguided. He was thinking the fulfillment of God's promise depended on Moses' ability. God replies to him, I made you, I will enable you. We don't need to be worried about what we can and can't do. If we're responding to the call of God, we know that he will enable us to fulfill that. Finally, Moses says, please just send somebody else. The Bible says, God became a little angry at Moses. God says, okay, I'm not changing my mind. It is your calling, it is your job, it is your role, but I am willing to accommodate your concerns and I'll send your brother Aaron. Aaron can be the spokesperson. You tell him what to say and he will say it. Interestingly, though, as the story unfolds, Aaron is less and less doing that. And Moses, we find, standing before a whole nation many times, telling them all about God. But Moses was going to be God's man, one way or the other. God knows us 
better than we know ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And when we have our doubts and our fears and our insecurities and our failings and concerns and our wonderings and our ponderings and our what-ifs, God says, I'm with you. I will enable you. I will give you signs. You're doing it all for me. So if you're looking for qualifications or reasons why yourself or somebody else is suited to a job God is calling them to do, it's not about examining yourself to see what makes you suitable for the task. Because human worthiness is really of no significance to God. He can overcome all of that. The thing is that God's presence is with the person. So Moses wasn't presented just with a mere vocational change. Well, you've been leading sheep, now you're going to lead people. But it's a whole reorientation of his life. Everything about his life is going to be different from that point on. So the question is not, can you do the job? But will you surrender your life to the service of God? They're two very, very different questions and very, very different perspectives. It's not about can you manage what you have to do between the hours of nine and five each day, but will you follow his calling 24-7? The third thing I think this story tells us about God is that his timing is right, even though dot, 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 and we'll fill that in shortly. At the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, it says, The years passed, the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, their cry rose to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on his people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. Then we turn the page. One day Moses was tending the flocks, etc., etc., etc. So they're in slavery for around 400 years. Now, 400 years can roll off the tongue quite easy. Let me try and put it into perspective for you. What does 400 years actually look like? In 1665, there was the bubonic plague in England, followed the year later by the Great Fire of London. 400 years from then is 2065. We've got another 46 years to go before there's 400 years between the present and the Black Death. Coming forward a little bit, in 1880, Ned Kelly muttered the famous words, such is life, before he was hung in a jail in Melbourne. 400 years from Ned Kelly's death would put it at 2280. That's another 261 years to go before 400 years from his death. In 1962, and some would argue this is way too late, Aboriginals were given the right to vote. 400 years from then is the year 2362. Only another 443 years to go. Sorry, 343 years to go. A child born this year who has a child when they turn 25, who has a child when they turn 25, 
who has a child, when they turn 25, you get the picture, that's 16 generations to create 400 years. Now, I don't know whether there's anyone here into family history, but I challenge you to see whether you can go back 16 generations in your family history. So 400 years is a long time. Can we truly get a concept of that? But could we get a concept of 400 years if it was 400 years of slavery, 400 years of harsh treatment, that your great-grandfather and grandfather and father only ever knew that? That's all that you've known. That's all that your children have ever known, all that your grandchildren have ever known, all that your great-grandchildren have ever known. It's an amazing concept. And it raises questions, well, God, why did you allow that to happen for such a long time? It raises questions, how does a person, how does a nation cope with such long-term suffering? God had told Abraham the nation would be in captivity in Egypt. He'd forecast that. And he would free them and lead them to the promised land. But why didn't he do it sooner than 400 years? And how many hundreds of thousands were born and died in that time and only ever knew slavery? They lived clinging to the hope that one day God would rescue them and save them. But it was only the end generations that saw that. There's no straightforward answers to those questions, but it can help us to understand if we look and see what the reason for that captivity and that slavery was. Before Jacob and his 12 sons moved to Egypt, they were in a land not far from Egypt. And they were to be the ones to uh, give birth to this mighty nation. Now, those of you who um, are biologically minded will realise quickly that if you have a family with 12 sons, it's not going to do much in terms of um, creating a nation. So these 12 sons had to marry. And they married people from the local land. And they had children. But as well as taking in new brides from the lands around... They'd take in the new bride's traditions and customs and religions. And so what was happening, there were a lot of different religions coming in. And God wanted these people to be his own people, his special chosen people. But there were idols, they were worshipping false gods because they were just including their, uh, their wives uh, and their wives' families in what was happening here. So in order for the family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to grow, to become a nation that would honour God and be loyal to him, they needed to be segregated both in a geographical sense but also in a social and a spiritual sense. Living in a dedicated area of Egypt, there was a land called Goshen that was given to them. They were physically separated. Being classed as slaves... They were socially separated. Who would want to marry into the family of a slave? But the hardship of slavery kept them focused on God. When things are going well, often God is not given any real thought. But during hardship, when you've got nothing else to rely on, no one else to turn to, then all of a sudden God becomes a very attractive option, if not the only option. So this time in slavery, this 400 years, kept the Israelites free from outside influences. 
allowed the nation to grow and multiply in numbers. 70 people came to Egypt during the famine when Joseph was in charge. About 2 million left 400 years later. Family go in, nation comes out. But a nation dedicated and focused on God. So God had an overall purpose and it was greater than any one individual or any one lifetime. But I guess we can tend to feel sorry for those who lived and died only knowing slavery. But I think that's a mistaken perspective. While we might desire a comfortable life, and a comfortable life is a pleasant thing, there are a lot more important things in life than that. A majority of the world's 7 million, I was going to write 6 million, but I thought I'd check the facts and figures. We've clocked over to 7 million, sorry, billion, 7 billion people in the world don't live a comfortable life at all. 80% live on less than $10 a day. 50% less live on less than $2.50 a day. So more important than a comfortable life is a life that lives growing to love God. A life that lives in faith of God. A life that lives with God as our hope. With God as our refuge. For that reason, Paul writes in the New Testament, we can consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. But I was thinking through that and I thought, someone in those people, those generations of sufferers in Egypt who never knew freedom, didn't even have a sniff of the promised land, somebody passed on the hope of God to the next generation. So in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of the hardship, they're telling their children about the goodness of God. They're telling their children about the hope that they have. They're telling them about the love that God has for them. What do we do In our times of suffering, what do we pass on to those around us? Do we pass on, God is good. Yes, life is hard. God is faithful. Yes, this hurts. God is loyal. Yes, I don't like where I'm I'm at. There is hope in God. Is that what we're passing on in our times of suffering? Or are we passing on despondency and disappointment? and anger and bitterness and despair. God's timing is perfect even though we may not see it or understand it. In the New Testament, we read in Romans, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time and died for us sinners. And in the book of Galatians, at just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. And in Ephesians, this is God's plan. At the right time, God will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. At the right time, even though we cannot see what that timing is. I'll get the band to come up and get ready. So as we continue to delve into 2019 with our theme on fire, let's know that God is on fire for us. He was on fire for his people in their hardship. He was on fire for Moses, who he saw great potential 
But my question to you today is what is keeping your fire burning for God? What is keeping your fire burning for God? For the Israelites, they kept that fire burning even in slavery. And I think they had the right kind of fuel. It wasn't just twigs and newspaper that were gone in a flash. The fuel that they had was unfailing hope in God. Knowing that he would hear their cries. The fuel they had to keep their fire burning was deep and it was solid. And I think in times of plenty, the fuel that keeps our fire burning can be very much like newspaper. If, if we look at the provisions God has given us and we say, God, thank you, I love you, look at all that you've done for me and all that you've given me. If that's taken away, then that's like that newspaper. I want to challenge you to see what really is keeping that fire going within. You know, Moses saw that the bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. That bush got his attention. He must have been watching it for a while. How would he know that it wasn't being consumed if he wasn't watching it for a while? And then he stepped closer, and that's when God spoke to him. My question to you is, if you've been watching God for a while, perhaps there's some element of God that's caught your attention. When is it that you will step closer and hear God speak your name and invite you to come closer, to understand his presence and his holiness? He wants our attention. It's up to us to move closer. You know, I mentioned that the land where the Israelites lived, where they were given a little part of Egypt, was called Goshen. And the word Goshen means drawing near. And how significant is that? That during their time of hardship and slavery, for all that time, they were in a land that meant drawing near. That's where they could draw near to God. You know, the Bible says that we are no longer slaves, no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to fear. If time in slavery for the Israelites meant that they were segregated from all the negative influences that could impact that growing nation, if we flip that around, if we're slaves to sin, then we find ourselves segregated from all the goodness of God. And we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to fear. We now have God as our master. And we don't have to be segregated from him, but we can join with him. We can work alongside him, knowing that his presence is there, his love for us is real and deep, and the fire that burns in that bush is the fire of the love that God has for us.